0: Welcome to another episode of the golf.com podcast. I'm your host, Sean Zock, and today we are going to dive into the most recent issue of Golf Magazine. That's the June issue, which has been out on newsstands for a couple weeks now. Uh, In that issue uh, are a number of great features, many of them focused on the U.S. Open, which for the men kicks off in two weeks at Shinnecock Hills. Now, before we get going on this year's U.S. Open, we're going to take a look back with a feature on the 2008 U.S. Open. It's one of the things that I think we do really, really well in Golf Magazine is commemorating anniversaries of historic moments in the game. There may not have been a a more historic event, at least since the turn of the century in the golf world, uh, than the 2008 U.S. Open between Tiger Woods and Rocco Mediate. Michael Bamberger dived deep into the story of that Open for Golf Magazine. Michael, what was it? Was it like? Was it difficult going back and researching such a boring golf event?
1: It was fun. Uh, I wouldn't say for me history would be if you're let's say we're going to talk about post Hogan golf history. Um, for memorability, it was way way up there. Uh, it was wild, but I would say Tiger winning that Masters by 12 in '97 and Tiger winning the Pebble Beach uh, Open and Tiger uh, by 15 in 2000. Tiger completing the Grand Slam once and twice. This would be more historic, but this would have to be one of the most entertaining, craziest, unlikely US opens ever. I hope that didn't sound too overstated, did it, Sean?
0: <laughs> no, no. See, I think you uh, I think you you made it pretty clear just how this this event is going to stand out in history. I was curious though, this is only ten years ago, ten year anniversary, how much of the event In your work, were you able to use your own memory of, or how much did you have to kind of go back and actually do some research on?
1: Well, you know, the answer is, of course, both. But I had extremely powerful, vivid uh, memories of it for a lot of different reasons, Uh, one of which was uh, at that point for Sports Illustrated, uh, my story for the weekly magazine was about NBC's coverage of the event. So I spent a lot of that week with the NBC crew and in the NBC trailers. Um, So I got to see the golf I got to hear the different commentators talking about it through headphones, both those who were actually covering it and and, and those who weren't, and all the main replays and the replays that they showed during the commercial breaks. And then uh, in the third round, and I think maybe again in the fourth round, I walked with uh, Roger Maltby, who was walking with Tiger. My story was really Roger at that point. Um, but he, his story was Tiger. So I got to see Tiger, and I got to see Tiger through Mulpey's eyes. And uh, so... There was a lot going on there. Then on the reporting end for the story, uh, I spent uh, three hours on the phone with uh, with Rocco's caddy, uh, Mad Caddy's for uh, Jim Herman now, and, and, and others. And uh, so it's it's always both. Uh, if you get a big man, it's your, your your personal take on the thing and then and the what you can get uh, in your reporting. Uh, how old would you have been then, Sean, when that uh, note was played?
0: Yeah, 2008, I would have been uh, 16 years old. So, yeah, sophomore To, to and, find
1: the answer, Sean, all you have to do is take your current age <laughs> and subtract ten. If you don't have a birthday between now and <laughs> uh, and the anniversary date of the U.S. Open, so that was good. So you were you were sixteen. You were in high school. You were probably just getting to golf yourself around there?
0: Yeah, really though. It was the it was the, by the time that I started working at a golf course finally i think that might have been the first summer i worked at a golf course
1: oh that's so where did you watch the uh that open if you watched it
0: so i I actually i I raced home to watch it um i worked a morning shift at the golf course and then was able to kind of race home and catch the final few holes at at, at home on tv
1: i don't think I i put this in the story uh i think i did the math for the story though tiger as every school child knows Won three straight U.S. juniors, mm-hmm. and then he won three straight U.S. AMs. Over the course of those six straight years of winning, 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 he went 36 and 0. You've got to win six matches to win, six straight matches to win any of those events. So 6, 12, 18, and then double it, 36. People say, wow, that was an uncharacteristic, even by Tiger standards, celebration when he made the putt on the 72nd hole to tie Rocko Media, their. And thereby, create uh, an 18-hole uh, Monday playoff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my thought there is probably the guy's already gone 36 and 0 in his last uh, 36 uh, USJ match play events. This is, a, you know, it's not truly a match play event, but it's like a match play event. He must know when that putt went in. There's a pretty good chance come the next day he's got to go 37 <laughs> and 0. Uh, and and the reason that comes to mind is because various people that I talked to, most notably. Uh, Steve Williams, uh, Tiger's caddy at the time, the caddy for 13 of his 14 majors. He he said uh, he said when that putt went in on the 72nd hole, he knew the Tiger had won the U.S. Open, which wow. is astounding.
0: That's cool. Uh, one of my my questions about this was how do you approach this assignment? Because you know that Golf Channel and Golf Digest and Golf Week and ESPN and every every competitor out there is going to have a story. Recapping uh, the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 U.S. Open, do you think about that at all? Do you think how can I make this different? How can I do some type of reporting that no one else is doing? How, how did you kind so
1: That's really neat that you that you think of that, Sean. Uh, uh, and maybe I should be uh, thinking along those lines. Maybe not. Um, but I, no, I don't. Until you just said it, it never even it never even occurred to me. I think the only time that would occur to me is if I couldn't get people and it's like, oh I'm fucked out on such and such subject. Uh, which I didn't get uh in this case. So mm-hmm. uh, uh no but to not to make this about the writing process, but I know that you sean are interested in the writing process. I would say in general I have a goal to get something that you're not going to get somewhere else. Yeah that i not but that's a goal but I'm not really thinking about what the other guys are doing. And and I, I like that. I like reading you know other people's uh, uh, takes, so uh, I look forward to read all those accounts that you just mentioned, and uh, I look forward to, to seeing uh, what other people do. And, and of course, you know, Golf Channel can do things that we can't do, but there's a lot of things that we can do that Golf Channel can't do. But I mean, we you know we can describe the the bobbling putt, uh, the Tiger Bay on the last and mean that little nose dive at the end to go in. Um, and it's one experience to read it, and it's another experience to see it. For me, it's. More powerful actually, to read it than to see it. Uh, totally, um, uh, you know, but it's, uh, different for, for different people. Anyway, I appreciate that question. It's a good. One. Yeah,
0: so I think I still think you accomplish whatever goal I set out for you there um, with the anecdotes. I mean, you go in depth on Rocco Mediate's uh, history, just trying to hit the fairway on the seventh hole, which would be the uh, the ninety first hole of that U.S. Open. Uh, then you go uh, into Tiger's request to use the bathroom after the 18-hole playoff. You bring in some thoughts from Steve Williams, uh, Tiger's caddy at the time. I mean, did you say that you had three hours of a conversation with with Rocco's caddy?
1: Yes, uh, I did, and uh, I could write I could write a mini book about that's uh, incredible about about Matt's experience, and uh, that's all th- that idea that uh, they never completed the seventh hole. Not once, not in a, successfully, not once, not in a practice round, not in the four rounds, not in the fifth not in the fifth round of the playoff, and not when they played it as the ninety first hole uh, and and Matt explained to me in sale why he never got back there for for another uh, for another practice round uh but Rocco was you know Rocco's had a history of uh, bad problems and preserving himself, didn't really play them in the uh, practice holes, uh, but Matt told some amazing stories about uh Rocco cracking his driver on Monday, and uh, Rocco uh, getting uh, a physical therapist, um, uh, Cindy, who cited in the story, and uh, the role that she played in making the week so special. And, uh, and this is always interesting to me, but I'm not sure how broadly interesting it is, how, how Rocco and Matt got together in the first place, and then, uh, and then sort of you, know, you have this peak exciting experience between the caddy and the player but it can't last forever. It doesn't last forever. It never does. Uh, and uh, you, you try to hold on to the magic, but you can't ultimately. Uh, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on there, but in, in all these uh, stories that, that uh, you write and, and uh, I try to write and, and our colleagues write, um, you know, it always, the, the most interesting part always comes back. And says, you know, there's the golf and there's the shots played and, uh, and the lie of the ball and, you know, as Watson says, you know, like dictate shot, and uh, you know, they so said there's so many things to consider, but ultimately, most of these stories are are relationship stories. Uh, and here you've got uh, Tiger and Rocco, you know, with a relationship. It might be a short, intense relationship, but it's a relationship. And you know, Matt and Tiger, and Steve and Tiger. Um, one of the interesting things from from Steve that I know that you've read, but uh, our listeners will probably not have seen yet, is that that Tiger was obsessed with the idea of that U.S. Open coming to, uh, to Torrey. Uh, he played it, I don't know how many times, dozens of times to be sure as a kid, and uh, a lot of rounds with his father there. When it was announced as the U.S. Open site, um, he, Tiger, could not let go of the idea that you know, an Open's coming to basically his home course, and he's going to win an Open there. Uh, you know, And he did under extraordinary circumstances.
0: Yeah, I, eventually you reach within the article that it, it felt uh, from other people's perspective that it was preordained, and it very well could have been. Uh, one thing that that stood out to me, and you you paint this picture a little bit, is that while we will be comparing ten years onward, what thirty two year old Tiger was like compared to forty five year old Rocco. If you think about it, I think there's I think there's similarities to be drawn between. Forty-two-year-old uh, Tiger and forty-five-year-old Rocco. Do you do you agree with that in any way? That that Tiger at at thirty-two could have learned a little bit uh, from forty-five-year-old Rocco.
1: Well, I think that's a. You know, I had never thought of it. That's a great point, uh, Sean. And uh, and the fact is, you know, U.S. Open is typically won by guys in their thirties, and it's changed over the years. He had a very young winner last year, uh, but if you look historically at uh, U.S. Open winners. Uh, uh, you know, they're in the thirties. The thirties still is even with this youth group, it's still usually uh your, your peak experience as a golfer. But I'm but you know, tiger takes strength from and and um oh what would be the word, Sean? Uh but it takes he takes strength and encouragement. That's not really what I'm looking for. Inspiration is really what I'm looking for from sources way beyond the likes of a journeyman like Rocco Mediate. Yeah mediate. But, and I think it's a very but Rocco showed that at age 45 and Watson showed at age 59 you can still compete you can you can be there on the 72nd hole, if you can be there on the 72nd hole you can win um, so I think Phil is likely the same and Davis Love is probably the same and B.J. to a lesser degree Tiger, Tiger must be thinking you know uh, I've got some years left in this game Uh uh, I've been coming through this uh, bulky back, so yeah, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point.
0: Now, lastly, before I let you go, I think one of the points that uh, about the 08 Open that gets lost a little bit is that these two guys were playing Tory Pines, what uh, a course that played over par uh, and did not play under par, we'll say that, for every other player besides them that week. So the course is playing per U.S. Open difficulty, and they played it uh, to one under over four days. and then on that fifth day, they still shot even par. Both of them. neither of them broke. neither of them shot a 76. They didn't both shoot 75. They both got back to even par for a fifth straight day. I was just kind of I guess that's the the lasting impression with me is that it was it that was is
1: one, amazing. I had really uh, uh, focused on that. The course was really long. Now, of course Aaron Hills was really long. But Aaron Hills, is, Aaron Hills is really long and really bouncy. You know, a Seaside uh uh summer course like that in, in uh, well that particular course, Tory Ponds, uh it wasn't a it wasn't a bounty uh, golf course. I can't remember the par fives that well, but they're not slam dunk at home in two par fives would be uh would would be my recollection. Uh the Greens were uh not pure, pure. You know, nothing like you'd find in Florida, or uh, or Augusta or, or National, or you know, at in, in a good year. Uh, so probably guys were holding uh, less putts, uh, but it's pretty amazing. Um, that Rush was lush, uh, but on the other hand, it's of course they know really well. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of trees on it, um, but uh, uh, it shows you. Say whatever you want about the USJ, and they don't, they don't admit to this. But everyone knows that it's the truth. They like even part winning score, and it shows you uh, what what golfing scientists they are that they can, you know, that they could achieve pretty much achieve that goal uh, when when when, thing, when things come together, and they, and they did that week.
0: Yeah, they definitely did that week. Uh, the story is called Never Ending Tory written by Michael Bamberger. For our next story, uh, it is a little bit of a fast forward from 08 uh, to, I guess, the reporting was done in late 2017, uh, surrounding two of the big names vying for this year's U.S. Open. That'd be Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka. You may have heard that they're good buddies as well. Um, no one got a better look at their relationship, really, than Alan Shipnuck, uh, who wrote a feature. Alan joins me now. Alan, are you ready for Shinnecock?
2: I'm pumped. You know, I I love I love Shinnecock like everybody does. I have a kind of a funny personal connection to it because it was the second U.S. Open I covered back in '95. I was still an undergrad at UCLA. I'd finished my my internship, at the magazine. I'd, I'd gone back to school to um, to finish my degree. I wound up taking a final a day early, on Wednesday, catching a red eye into JFK and and motoring out to Shinny for um you know the first round of competition so it uh it made quite an impression on me as a a wide-eyed young reporter and it's a neat part of the world it's a great golf course there's just something special about an open at Shinnecock so I can't wait.
0: Does SI in 95 not have someone out east that is ready to cover the U.S. Open they needed to import this undergrad from UCLA?
2: Well, they did have people, but they wanted me. You know, oh. I was uh, <laughs> I, I was I was part of the crew at that point, and uh, so uh, That's good. I may have you know, I may have emphasized my my enthusiasm to be there. So uh, no, that they,
3: you know that was that was a memorable
2: open. The um, you know, of course, you remember how Retief Goosen broke Phil's heart, and um, subsequently, uh, it, it's interesting because Corey Pavin was a good winner. Retief Goosen was a good winner, but we have not had one of the game's most popular players or yeah. one of the elite of the elite um, win, which you'd expect on a course that good. So, uh, I, I, you know, is this is this going to be the the Shinnecock Open where you get uh, the the most deserving kind of champion? We shall see.
0: Totally. Now, you wrote the story that you are here to talk about. Uh, for the Shinnecock Preview magazine, it's called Brothers in Arms. You actually wrote and reported it a while ago, though. We've been holding on to this one uh, with good reason, because Kepka and DJ are both on the cover of the magazine, but mainly because it's it's difficult to get access with two top ten players at the same time. What was your pitch to the, the Kepka camp and the DJ camp?
2: It's kind of been a long conversation, uh, because I'd, I'd done a couple of big... Features on on Dustin, the end of um, you know 2016 when he was you know basically our player of the year, and and then in early 2017 I did a story about him and his brother, and you can't write about Dustin without writing about his, his relationship with uh, Joey D, his trainer, and Joey D is a colorful, he's a big personality, and he's he's one of the most important people in in Dustin's life. Not only does does he has he Taken this raw athlete and turned him into you know kind of a superhero as far as a physical specimen, but he's also kind of his life coach and his his dietitian and uh, his sports psychologist in some way so it, it's a really profound relationship and then when Brooks Kepka was renovating his house, he lived with Dustin this is in in late kind of 2016 lived with him for basically six months started going to gym with him he became very close to to joey d started working with him formally last spring and then of course he wins the u.s open so now you have one guy who's the kind of the guru to uh the back-to-back u.s open champs and so um really wanted to tap into that that unique dynamic they train together they, they they're on paddle boards they're on road bikes they're in the swimming pool uh, of course they're in the gym uh, not only in South Florida but also on the on the road you know they're kind of moving in a, in a unit so as you said trying to get trying to get both their schedules to align um the the best time to do it was was the end of 2016 and of course that was before Brooks got hurt and that was one of also the reasons you know the story got held was we kind of needed him back in action you know, as we've seen his fine play he's certainly back but uh, so yeah I was it, it was kind of a a. It was not an obvious idea. It, it was more as the more time I spent around Dustin, the more reporting I did around his life, and then as Brooks's emergence. It it became more obvious. That it was something we had to do. And um, as, as you know, Golf Magazine, we like to write features, but there's also a service element. And I think that um, the way these guys have have taken their raw tools and and sharpened them in the gym, and the way they've dedicated their life to to that kind of self-improvement is something that you know. I think a lot of people will, will find inspirational and helpful in, uh, in, in golf and in other aspects of, of how they live.
0: Yeah, totally. This is a different type of Alan Shipnuck feature in that it, it includes those kind of uh, classic bits, anecdotes from hanging out with the two, but also we've added some instruction to it. Uh, these dudes have been heralded as athletes. You know it's cliche to talk about Dustin the athlete and Kepka the athlete, Um they even like kind of give cliched answers about it now, but it's still a huge part of their life. Um, So I'm kind of interested in what were you particularly, what were you looking to find out about how they include fitness in their life? Like you, you could have probably found out enough without hearing it from them. What were you interested in finding out on your own?
2: Well, I think that it just what it's a holistic approach. I mean, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's not just an hour a day in the gym, you know, because everybody does that, right? I mean, at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's even this obsession with, you know, what they call clean eating. And, and, you know, Brooks and DJ try and outdo each other. Like, who who can eat the best? You know, they pretty much have sworn off any kind of sugar, red meat, um, pretty much everything that's fun to eat they've stripped out of their diet. I mean, they're they're so dedicated to uh, fine, fine-tuning fine their their internal body chemistry and you know they, they take these blood tests and they they do see actual dietitians and dustin's hired this chef she's actually vegan trained although they they you know he does eat um fish and chicken as does brooks but you know he imports the this this chef it's a woman she comes to um the majors and the WGCs and all the big events i mean that you go you go to Mexico City for a WGC and you know, one of the best eating cities in the world. The food is fantastic, but Dustin's at home. You know, eating his his veggies and his all the all the things that are um, you know helping him get to where he wants to go. So uh, it was it was interesting to see to see the the depth of their dedication, and then it was also fun to you know witness just their their playful chemistry. You know, we we got them out on paddleboards out in the intercoastal and. Um, Dustin Brooks and and Joey D and you know they're they're jacked around trying to push each other off the paddleboard and essentially drown each other and um, they kind of wound up after that they want to just like rinse off they get in the pool they're throwing football and you know diving in the pool and it was just uh, it was it was a nice little glimpse into their world and, and into their relationship.
0: Totally now this story is very much about them but in some ways, it's ultimately about Joey D. It's Joey Dio Vesalvi, the trainer. Um, he to me, he feels like a new age trainer because I know he he does some work with Justin Thomas and you know and numerous other people. But he's had a, he's actually he worked with VJ Singh for quite a long time. I think people think of Joey D as this new age guy, but he's been around the block.
2: Well, no, I mean he's actually old school in the extreme. I mean he's think about like a 1950s football coach that's kind of the vibe he brings to the gym he's very confrontational he's very um in in your face to his clients not in an obnoxious way but it's constant challenge and you know he's a physical specimen himself and and even though he's in his early 50s and dustin has described his diet as you know twigs and berries and that um and so when they go on a bike ride Joey D gets on his road bike, and he he's the lead dog, and they're just they're just trying to catch up. And when they're paddle boarding, he's setting the pace, and um, he loves to talk trash with those guys because they're half his age and they're world class athletes, and he's kicking their butt at everything they do, and it drives them crazy. Um, and you know, he, if, if they're in the gym, he's pumping iron too with them, and he, he he's tearing off the same the same amount of weight and, and reps and so it's it's really it's really interesting because he's not an observer he's a participant and uh, you know Dustin's a competitive guy so is Brooks and he kind of lights their fuse a little bit and it's really fun to watch and uh, you know we we did we did a, a super cool video so there was a, there was a showbiz element where, you know we have we have cameras and we have lighting and we have microphones it's like uh, and we asked Joey to kind of do choreograph a workout that that's what they do but a lot of different things. It's kind of compressed. So it, it wasn't quite a real workout but it almost was. And with the cameras, you know, you, these guys could have they could have gone through the motions and not taken it one hundred percent seriously, but it was the opposite. I mean they were grinding so hard because he just he just everything they do, you know, Joey's pushing them and everything's a, a challenge and everything's personal. And it's he's testing their manhood constantly, and it was uh, it was fun to watch. And I, when you watch the video, I mean, they're really sweating and they're really breathing hard, and they're feeling the burn. And uh, it was it was cool to to capture that, uh, you know, not just in print but all, but also in video.
0: Yeah. So well, I guess uh, Joey D. He's he's an intense guy. Uh, he he's he's all about the hype, and uh, I think you get that from having even a phone conversation with him. Um, but but he'll he'll tell you like these guys are world class athletes and I think some people are a little hesitant to agree with that but you seem to buy into the theory.
2: You know Joey he can he can quantify it in in different ways he has these machines that um, can measure uh, basically output you know how how fast are you swinging something or how hard are you hitting it and you know he works with NHL guys and and baseball players and and these big bruisers and. You know, on these machines, he says Dustin and and Brooks are in the top 10 percent of all the athletes he trains, you know, ever. And he has these agility drills. He's he's cribbed from NFL players, and you know, he says Dustin's at the top of the top of that. And so, um, there's ways you can actually quantify it, but you, you, when you see how hard these guys go in the gym, or in the pool, on the bikes, <laughs> I mean. You know they're not Craig Stadler, they're not Tim Harran. I mean, they're they're bringing an entirely different um, intensity and dedication. I mean, I mean, when you look at Brooks now walking down the fairway, I mean the fair, the U.S. Open fairways are not wide enough to accommodate his biceps. You know, he, like they're gonna have to they're gonna have to widen Shinny just so he can make it down the fairway. The guy is he looks like a linebacker, and Dustin is a totally different body type. But you know, he, he moves like. Um, this jungle cat, and I mean, you can see the grace and kind of the um, the coil in him, and obviously it's it's obvious when he swings to golf clubs, so um for all the different ways you can you can measure it that and Joey can boy with those details, but you just have to look with your eyes to, to see the way these guys move see the power they generate with the the golf you know with with the golf club in their hand and and, um, just the way they look, I mean, there, there's no question that they're athole leads.
0: Yeah. Now, before you go, that is the question, or that is at least part of the question. Can we meet in the middle here on the debate between Brandel and Brooks, between Johnny Miller and Rory? Like, I don't understand why there needs to be such a divide between saying, oh, these guys are lifting too much or, you know, I, you know, you should be lifting far less, uh, I just don't understand the divide being as wide as it seems.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's Johnny Miller and Brandel. They came up. No, it was it was taboo to be in the gym. You know, it was this feeling that if you did anything, it would it'd make you stiff and tight, and it would affect your golf swing. Now, probably what they were doing a lot of things that were that were wrong, or guys were just winging it on their own. I mean, they didn't have a, a trained professional with a quarter century of experience like a Joey D or some of these other, a Ben Shear or there's a lot of other trainers out there who dedicated their life to studying the human body and, and how it can be, a, how this wisdom can be applied to golfers. And so I'm sure, I'm sure back in the day, guys did mess themselves up because they didn't know what they were doing or they were doing the wrong things. But now there's so much oversight and so much research and body of knowledge. Um, the human body was not designed to swing a golf club and especially not at 130 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's going to be injuries in golf. I mean, there always has been um, is, is the gym causing it or is it preventing it? I mean, um, it's hard to say. I, I mean, Hale Irwin's club had to be with the drivers probably in his prime was probably 103 miles an hour. You know, that puts a little less stress on your body than mm-hmm. um, the way these guys swing the club. So, um, they have to strengthen their core, strengthen their legs, uh, they have to be supple at the same time. And um, I don't know, it, you know, Rory has has had a lot of dings and he's obviously gotten a lot bigger and more muscular. Um, but when he was a tubby, you know, 21-year-old, he started having back trouble. And he went to the gym to try and get healthy and try and prolong his career. So maybe if he hadn't done that, he'd be out of golf. You know, if if he was still 240 pounds and swinging the club, the way he does, he might have wrecked himself. But mm-hmm. It it's kind of the unanswerable. Whenever whenever one of these guys gets hurt, then you know it's the gym's fault. And when when they you know decimate a, a golf course with their power, then it's the technology. It's like they, they're never really given the credit for the work they do and and the way it's helped them. So uh, I do think it's silly to um, to think that they're doing more harm than good. I mean, um, but it's, it's kind of unanswerable because you can't take the same athlete and train them like these guys do and then, or do nothing and and compare the results. I mean, you gotta, there's a fork in the road and you gotta pick which which way you're going. And these guys, it's their body, it's their career and they're choosing to do the training. I think that, I think they know what's good for them more than a dude sitting on the couch, you know, opining, but uh, it, it is interesting. You know, if uh if Dustin gets hurt then maybe people start pointing the finger at Joey D, but he he's comfortable with, with what he's done and and even even Brooks's wrist injury, I mean that was a fluke. Many, many golfers have a hand at wrist injuries, whether it's a Jose Mario Athabo or a Marco Mira, you can go on down the list. I mean I don't think that was that was caused in the gym and how quickly he's come back from the injury is a testament to how hard he worked in the gym to be ready to get the rest of his body ready to go. I mean, the guy comes off the DL and he's shooting 63s like it's nothing. I mean, that's because he put in so much work to be ready. So I don't know. If, if I had to pick a side, I would I would think that these guys are, are helping themselves as athletes as opposed to hurting themselves as golfers. But um, it's, it's unknowable. It's unanswerable. And I guess that's what makes it, those debates fun because mm-hmm. we can all think we're right and uh, it's hard to disprove one way or the other.
0: Yeah. Well, I will definitely agree with you. And that is Good enough about that debate for now. The story is Brothers in Arms, written by Alan Shipnuck. Finally, we can move on to Shinnecock and to three U.S. Open champions in particular. Jeff Ritter interviewed the last three champions to all win at Shinnecock. That's Ray Floyd, Corey Pavin, and Retief Goosen. The story in the magazine is called What It Takes. Jeff, in my experience, uh, the older that a champion is they're either much more difficult or much easier to get a hold of. What was it like wrangling some time with all three of these guys?
3: Oh, it was uh, actually, it wasn't too hard uh, for any of them. I think uh, Ray Floyd was the only one who, through his agent, um, it sounded dicey at first, but then um, he just kind of called me unexpectedly <laughs> uh, <laughs> just out of the blue um, a couple days after after sort of a tentative a tentative denial from the agent Um, Floyd himself just called me and and he was really into it had told some great stories so and then then Corey and Retief were were great and responded quickly and uh, um, I think you know if you're if you're a champion if this is your this is one of your highlights of your career I would I would think it's maybe the phone call I don't know if these guys necessarily love doing media stuff but the phone call maybe you somewhat anticipate and I don't know, at this point in your life and career, maybe you enjoy getting a little bit. It's a chance to tell some old war stories and um, get out in front of one of the great moments of your career.
0: That's what I think. Like, I know that you and I can't rightfully place ourselves in the positions of a former U.S. Open champion who gets media requests occasionally, but especially these three guys. I mean, it's not like they had the most decorated careers where they won 10 majors and they're constantly kind of in the public eye, even as senior players. These guys not not exactly gulf legends this was their kind of one shining moment so i tend to believe that you you'd you'd think they would be very very open to it so i'm glad you got a hold of them all uh, if you had to pick a favorite interview of the three uh, which interview would would you choose
3: yeah i don't know i got a, i did get a kick out of ray floyd all three interviews were great um obviously for something like this we stitched it together to make it sort of run as a round table the interviews were done separately and uh, Floyd started off kind of grouchy, kind of said, "You know, I don't do a lot of these interviews anymore." Uh, but really warmed up as it went along and told some great stories uh, about his week and kind of the inside knowledge he got on the golf course along the way and, and you know the challenges of his week. And I just um, all three interviews were great, but his his turned out to be the most colorful, and uh, for me as the interviewer, the most fun to do.
0: Yeah, uh, there was another like little sidebar in the story about how Ray Floyd wanted to, to get out early to Shinnecock, and his caddy wasn't even out there with him on day one, so he took a local caddy and actually got some great inside info in terms of just how to play the greens and such.
3: That's right, yeah. So Floyd was coming in from uh, a wet, what was been called the Westchester Classic, and uh, his caddy wasn't in town yet, but he still wants to get this Monday morning practice round in. So he just takes a local caddy, grabs a Shinnecock club caddy, and goes takes a spin. And the caddy, uh, you know, bears his, gives gives Floyd everything he's got as far as tips on how to read the greens. Um, talks about kind of the subtleness of the slopes based on where you are on the golf course. Be aware of where the clubhouse is; is one of the highest points out there, and the water, of course, the low point. And uh, you know, I don't I don't know if it's the type of knowledge that a pro couldn't couldn't sort of figure out on their own, but Floyd certainly got some confidence from it. And you know, a major championship—if it helps you hold two or three putts that maybe you wouldn't have along the way—that uh, gives you a lot of confidence, and that—that might have done it for Floyd. So, I mean, all these years later, that was a story that that didn't really fit the article, but we just sort of ran it as a sidebar uh, of Ray talking about his his practice round spin with that local caddy and what that did for him.
0: Yeah, two or three shots, especially at a U.S. Open, are worth lots, uh, worth worth a lot of money more than anything. Uh, did you approach these interviews differently? Like these guys won their their u s Open in three different decades. So there's going to be some memory uh, discrepancies between the three of them, most likely, uh, and kind of a different golf course. like did you did you feel like you needed to present them with questions in a different way, or are you just kind of going across the bat on all of them?
3: I think uh, the framework was the same for all three. But I kind of wanted to let um, give each of them the space to tell stories. So um, I kind of knew I wanted to ask them about the golf course. I wanted to ask them what the toughest spots. I wanted to ask them their favorite moments. I wanted to ask them who they liked this year, but um, and that's kind of how the story structured. But along the way, um, you know, if i if I sense that something sparks a memory or they're really enjoying talking about one point, I just try to let them go. You know, as an interviewer, you always want to just get the best stories you can out of whoever it is you're interviewing. So I had a structure in place for the story and in my head, how the, how the article would go, but I still wanted to give guys a chance to, um, you know, if they're, if they've got a story to tell, I want to give them a chance to share it.
0: So in hindsight, do you feel like, you know, Shinnecock better than you did um, six months ago? Do you, do you know, do you feel like it, you, you kind of understand the U S open a little bit better through the eyes of three of his former champions. Like what do you think needs to be known uh, or what needs to come away from, from this particular round table?
3: I think, I think one thing that I have a new appreciation for is just how revered this golf course is. Um, I've I've never been, I've never played it. I've never been on the property myself, but um, you know, obviously it's one of the um, hallowed members of the U S open rotation, but just how much all three guys spoke uh, so glowingly of the golf course and the, the creativity it requires and kind of the genius of the architecture. Ray Floyd went on and on about how he loves how each hole points a different direction. And so as you work your way around, whatever wind you have, you're going to play it in different directions as you go around. You'll be into the wind, one hole, across crosswind one way at the next hole and crossing another direction a little bit later. And, he just loves it and, and the Pavin and Goosen as well really uh Shinnecock, not just because they're champions there, but they just really appreciate the architecture and the unique talent that it provides so I
1: think
3: um I think that was one of my takeaways I guess is that this is it, I knew it was one of the crown jewels of the US Open, but I wasn't exactly sure why and hearing the players talk about it gave me a, a more of a perspective on that.
0: Totally. Now the one part that I was disappointed in is is that w- while you asked them to all kind of wager a guess as to who might win this year, they all kind of gave your typical pretty canned responses of DJ or Rory or JT, and maybe that's just fine. Um, so let me ask you though, w- would you have a pick based off how you know Shinnecock to be, and how you knew U.S. Opens to be? Is it even fair to wager a guess at this point? Like, does it? Do you feel like it fits a certain player out there today?
3: I think, uh, well, it's hard to imagine the way the USGA sets up courses now, and we and we know Shinnecock's going to play, I believe it's what, an extra 500 yards compared yeah. to the last time it was out there, something like that. It's hard to imagine uh, somebody who's not uh, at the top or at least it's a better-than-average driver of the golf ball, uh, both in terms of distance and also finding the fairways. We know it's going to have a bunch of rough, um, but you still got to be able to get it out there. So – I think it's probably that combination of, of power and accuracy, and then um, it might be more a little bit more of an iron player's course beyond that, though. I think the putting, the greens are subtle, and they're tough, and no one wins the U.S. Open without putting. No one wins any tournament without putting well, but I think maybe this is one where iron play can really separate you, because... A little little bit like Augusta, it's where you place yourself on these greens and giving yourself a chance at the putts, as opposed to just hitting the greens. You know, it's not about GIR necessarily. It's about leaving yourself putts that you can potentially make. So Mm -hmm. um, I I probably, I don't know, I'm going to change my mind on my pick several times between now and the U.S. Open. But (laughs) as we sit here today, I'm kind of thinking it might be a Rory McIlroy kind of week. I like the way it's coming together uh form is 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 he's rounding into form and i i just think he's going to win somewhere this summer i don't know if if i had a, if i had to pick right now um uh, based on just the intel i've gathered on the golf course after talking to these guys i might lean Rory or somebody uh who fits that profile yeah what do you think you've spent time out there what where are you leaning right now
0: see i'm leaning towards the fact that it's probably just foolish to even answer the question, honestly.
3: I, I, oh, I, guess, I should have ducked the question. That was the right <laughs> you answer. You could have. You could have, no. <laughs>
0: um, I think uh, Justin Thomas has played a different schedule this year than he ever has before. He doesn't have to play 30 events a year or even 25 events a year, and he continues. He He has 12 top 25s in 13 events. The guy's just not playing any bad golf anywhere. The only cut he missed was at the Zurich Classic with two with a teammate, and it's just like JT is. uh, He's just you know he's not playing a ton of golf right now. He's going to play the Memorial this weekend, but I think that that guy has a a floor that's about as high as anybody's floor is right now. So I think if he plays well that week, he's going to contend
3: it's a good pick the other the name that uh made it into the story that uh, surprised me Corey pavin brought it up uh was brian harman yeah
1: he's
3: quietly having a great year he's back to he was last year was sort of his breakout but he's really backing it up this year you wouldn't think pavin made this point that you wouldn't think aaron hills is the kind of golf course where brian harman would contend just based on
1: mm-hmm. you know his
3: profile as, as not being one of the long hitters of the game but he was there on the weekend last year he had a chance and uh I don't know. He might be another name maybe not to overlook this time. Uh, another guy who will rely on his irons, and he's a great putter when he's on. So I thought that was a, a, at least you know most of the, the usual, sus- usual suspects made it into the story, but uh, I thought that was a different kind of name to bring up, and I, I didn't think it was a, a crazy idea of Pave to mention him.
0: Totally. Now, we'll have to see, but for now, people can dive into the story. It's called What It Takes – It's written by Jeff Ritter. We are just a few days away from it all. We'll be commuting out to Shinnecock uh, for the first time, I guess, in like 12 days. So... Thanks to Jeff. Uh, thanks to you for listening. This issue of the magazine, the June issue, is absolutely loaded with all kinds of U.S. Open, all kinds of Shinnecock information. We spend an incredible amount of time preparing for our master's issue that goes out in the beginning of March every year, and more, more time on that issue than any other issue, I think. And I think that this U.S. Open one is, is actually probably better somehow, because um, that was a great master's issue. We put a lot of time into this one. You can find it on newsstands right now. Get it while it's hot. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.